Hi friends, thank you for joining us again for the ASP Stories weekend bonus episode. Join us on Mondays and Thursdays where we interview amazing guests where they share with us about their adventure sports and the amazing feats that they have done. But ASP Stories is where we get to listen in as authors read their adventure stories to us. So sit back with your hot cup of tea or coffee and kick off your adventure-filled weekend by listening in while we hear more from ASP Stories. Our featured author today is Elspeth Beard. Elspeth was on the Adventure Sports Podcast telling her amazing story back on episode 292. So if you want to hear the interview and hear her overview of what the whole adventure was like, then go to episode 292 and give a listen. Today's book by Elspeth is entitled Lone Rider, the first British woman to motorcycle around the world. It's a delightful read, and I'm sure that you're going to enjoy it a lot and an amazing story to share as well. You can find a copy of this book, of course, on Amazon.com. There will be a U.S. copy that is going to launch on June the 1st. Until then, there's a UK version that is also available on Amazon.com. And you can also get a hardback copy from the website, elspethbeard.com. That's E-L-S-P-E-T-H-B-E-A-R-D.com. The reading today is done by Ann Linville, my wonderful wife. So sit back and enjoy the stories. Prologue, Southern Thailand, 10 April, 1984. For five long, hot, tiring days, I'd ridden towards the equator, skimming the Burmese border on the skinny section of the Thai Peninsula, somewhere between the lazy beaches of the south and bustling Bangkok and the plains to the north. I had to be in Penang in three days to catch a cargo ship across the Bay of Bengal to Madras. I had ridden up to the Thai-Burma border in search of a route through to India and on to Nepal, Until now, I'd traveled rich in time but poor in money. Now, for the first time, I had a deadline and a direct overland route that promised considerable savings of both when they were running out fast. Largely ignorant of what might lie ahead, I'd arrived at the border, having heard conflicting reports about a possible route through Burma, as Myanmar was then known. But as I stood gazing at Burma, hazy in the distance on that sweaty overcast afternoon, I didn't need my makeshift map to tell me that the roadblock in front of me marked more than the end of this particular road. I'd run out of road and options. With nowhere else to go, I began the long journey to Penang in Malaysia, more than 1,200 sticky miles ahead. It was for times like this that I loved riding my bike. Those moments when all thoughts of the past and future slipped away and I existed entirely in the present. The miles rolling past beneath the wheels of my big BMW, the morning light clear and golden, throwing shadow bands across the road as I carved my way around the world. As I rode and the days and the miles ticked past, I spoke to my bike, cajoling her with promises of an oil change and a clean air filter if she got me to Penang in time. It was the kind of bargain I'd struck many times since leaving London nearly 18 months earlier. With a couple of bags over my shoulder, the takings of a summer's pub work in my pocket, and yearnings for my ex-boyfriend in my heart, I departed, carrying a widely ridiculed dream of riding a motorcycle right around the globe, something which, to my knowledge, no woman and few men had ever done. 
I treated my nine-year-old BMW R66 well, cared for my darling as I would any old lady with too many miles on the clock, more than 18,000 miles together, another 15,000 to go, just me and my girl. Five nights earlier, I'd been in Chiang Rai, as far north as most travelers ventured in Southeast Asia in 1983. There, in the Golden Triangle of Laos, Burma, and Northern Thailand, the mountain pastures were dominated by opium poppy growing and heroin production, scaring off most outsiders. But not me. On that golden southern Thai morning, I was riding on a small dusty country road between fields a few miles from the main highway that carried all the traffic up the peninsula from Malaysia, Singapore, and Indonesia to Bangkok. My speed was creeping towards 60 miles per hour, too fast and I knew it, but as on every previous day, I'd convinced myself that I was safe, so safe I'd capitulated to the heat by removing my gloves. We got away with it yesterday, I said to my girl, even though we'd shared dozens of near misses already. That's when I hit the dog. A flash of brown and white fur, two black eyes filled with terror, a thud. I didn't even break. It appeared from nowhere and disappeared immediately. All I saw was a blurred collision of metal and hair. A dark green truck stacked high with baled goods had been approaching on the opposite carriageway, blocking my view of the far side of the road. As it passed, the dog shot out from behind it into my path. It never stood a chance, but it was big enough, a standard-issue Thai mongrel the size of a German shepherd, to knock me clean off my bike. I smacked onto the tarmac. My breath catapulted out of me, and everything slipped into slow motion as I slid on my back across the road, watching my bike trundle upright and riderless ahead of me into a ditch out of sight. Dazed and breathless, I pushed myself up, stumbled to my feet, my ears ringing as I looked around for some remains of the dog. Nothing. My bike, however, was wedged against a tree in a ditch. My chances of reaching that boat in time no longer looked so good. I rushed over to my BMW wanting to pull her free. I grabbed her front wheel, which was jammed against a tree, clasping the truck between her front tire and her exhaust outlets. I tugged as hard as I could. That's when the adrenaline wore off, and I suddenly felt the pain. My hands, red, raw, the skin scraped off both palms, were bleeding and screamed sore. I tried to ignore it tried to tug again at the front wheel, but the pain was too much. I stopped and looked at myself properly for the first time. My trousers were badly torn, my thighs grazed, my right foot smashed up, but my leather jacket had saved my arms and shoulders. Thank God I'd been wearing my helmet. I was cut and bruised and smashed about. With a bike I feared was wrecked, at a time long before the advent of mobile phones, internet, and email. I was 24 years old, a young architecture graduate with little experience of the world and hardly any money in my pocket. I was alone, a thousand miles from anyone I knew, in a country whose language I didn't speak and couldn't read, on a road I didn't know. An excerpt from Chapter 3, First Day on the Road. I left early on the morning of 17 October, the start of my third week on the road. 300 miles to Gatlinburg on the edge of the Great Smoky Mountains National Park, where I hoped to save some money by camping that night. As ever, financial concerns filled my thoughts. As I rode, I pondered the old girl's consumption. 
It was a big country, which meant big distances every day and hefty fuel bills. The BMW was most economical when cruising at about 60 miles per hour, but I got bored, wanted to ride faster, so I tried to calculate the payoff between slow riding, which incurred greater expenditure on accommodation and food, versus faster riding, which cost more in petrol. There was no easy answer. After a long, hard ride through Kentucky into Tennessee, I arrived at Gatlinburg, only to discover that all the campsites and motels were full. Asking around, I discovered I'd chosen the busiest weekend of the entire year when almost everyone within driving distance came to the park to see the autumn tree colors. Disbelieving my bad luck, I sat down on the side of the road, too tired to ride on any further. I always found this was the best way to make decisions. While I was sitting contemplating the situation, an elderly couple stopped beside me. I explained my predicament, hoping that they might have some idea of where I could stay, but they wouldn't hear any of it and offered me a bed in their huge motorhome. Under the circumstances, I had little choice, although I felt slightly embarrassed sitting in their pristine motorhome in my filthy leathers and duck-oiled cotton trousers. It didn't seem to bother them, and I had a very pleasant evening with them. They asked where I was headed when I said Sydney then London via the Far East, India, and Iran, Jack told me he had spent many years traveling. When I was young and traveled, I think I was just trying to get away from myself, he said, but everywhere I pulled up at night, I was always there. I knew exactly what he meant. Here I was in the middle of Tennessee, on my own, far from home, running away from my problems and trying to get away from my feelings for Alex, which I still carried with me everywhere I went. Although Alex and Mark were frequently in my thoughts, I felt that the trip was already doing me good. With every passing day and mile, I thought about them slightly less. The simple requirements of my life on the road, calculations of mileage and consumption, considerations of the journey ahead, and what I needed to do at my next stop were pushing thoughts of home out of my head. Before it got too late and the conversation turned to even more weighty matters, I made my excuses and turned in for the night. Remember, Elspeth, said Jack, as I was about to leave the room, young people with no friends are nobody. The next day, Jack and his wife insisted they chauffeur me around the park, but by midday, realizing one view across the Smoky Mountains was very much like every other, I was on the road again, heading west towards Nashville and Memphis for no particular reason other than I had heard of them. I didn't know what to expect of Nashville, but it was at the epicenter of country and western music. I imagined the locals would all be dressed in huge cowboy hats, fancy boots, shirts with tassels and collar brooches, and jeans with huge belt buckles. Needless to say, I didn't see a single person dressed like that, not even a hint of the country and western music scene at all. Disappointed, I decided to keep moving and stop that night at a small hotel off the freeway between Nashville and Memphis. The next day, I arrived in Memphis by mid-morning and searched out Elvis Presley's house, Graceland, only to find it was closed to visitors. All I could do was stand outside the iconic wrought iron gates shaped like a book of sheet music with green-colored musical notes and two silhouettes of Elvis. They weren't something I would normally ride out of my way to see, but as I was there, I decided to make the most of it. So I bought a sandwich, sat outside the gates, eating it, and watching all the other tourists, many of whom were carving or writing their names on the wall. With nothing else to interest me in Memphis, I turned my bike south and headed towards New Orleans, a place I'd always wanted to visit. As I rode along smaller routes parallel to the interstate highway, the air felt warmer, the accent sounded broader, and the speech became slower the further south I went. 
Passing through cotton fields, it felt like life was slowing almost to a halt. I stopped to take a photograph, and there was a total silence, absolute peace, one of those perfect moments, just me on my own in emotionless environment, no cars, no voices, nobody there, no one wanting anything from me. I loved it. It was exactly what I'd been seeking for the last few months. Do you suffer from acute lethargy, stiff joints, weight management challenges, and worsening eyesight or hearing issues? Do you sometimes feel low in energy or have trouble sleeping well? Do you wonder at times about your path in life and your vitality? You may be suffering from PYAD. This disorder is much more common than you might at first think. The good news is that we have a remedy that can alleviate many of these undesired symptoms. This life-altering remedy for PYAD is called ASP and can help you get your life back again. Regain your energy and excitement for life. Sleep better at night. Watch unwanted pounds drop off as muscle mass recovers. Many using ASP report a new vitality and even report improvements in their social life. ASP may be the remedy you are looking for. Recent studies have shown that individuals not suffering from PYAD, post-youth aging disorder, also experience great benefits from ASP. Matter of fact, people of all ages from all backgrounds report amazing improvements by using ASP to enrich and recover their zest for living. Sound too good to be true? It is not. ASP, the Adventure Sports Podcast, can help you get the enthusiasm, strength, and fun back in your life. The aforementioned claims have not been medically verified and no animals were harmed in the making of this advertisement. Hey guys, if you want to help support the Adventure Sports Podcast, do us a favor and visit our site at adventuresportspodcast.com and click on the sponsor links on the right-hand side of the page. Even if you're not in the market for one of their products right now, it's always good for them to know that you're hearing about them on our show. If you'd like to support us directly, you can visit our site at www.180tack. There you'll find the 180 stove and 180 flame camp stoves, as well as the Bearline Plus utility system. Consider picking one up for yourself or maybe even for your fellow adventurer. And last but not least, you can always visit patreon.com slash adventuresportspodcast and donate a little bit to the show. Thanks for being awesome listeners. We truly value you guys. And now, back to the show. By six o'clock, darkness was approaching, so I pulled over at Vicksburg, an old pioneering town and the scene of a decisive siege in the American Civil War. 200 miles from New Orleans, it left an easy day's ride for the following day. So I drove around the main streets looking for a cheap motel. Hot, sticky, and tired, I'd stopped to look at a map of the town when a red Corvette Stingray with white leather seats cruised up. Can I help you, honey? The voice came from a man dressed entirely in white, leaning out of the window of the stingray, his eyebrows raised suggestively, with a huge gold medallion buried in his hairy chest and eyes like a shark. He immediately reminded me of Burt Reynolds. I'm okay, thanks, I said, feeling like I was a bit part player in some trashy 1970s Hollywood movie. You look more than okay, said Stingray Man, but you don't seem okay. I explained I was looking for a cheap motel. Follow me, sweetie pie. He spoke in a slow southern drawl that in any other circumstances I would have found attractive. 
I waited up. Surely there was no harm in taking up his offer. After all, I was on my bike so I could go anywhere I pleased. I agreed. Five minutes later, we were outside a motel with a large neon sign, rooms, $10 per night. It certainly looked like the kind of place I was after. As I walked towards a hut labeled reception, an obese man in a food-stained nylon shirt over his skin slick with sweat pushed open the fly screen on the door. Yeah? Are you the owner? I said. He nodded slowly. I noticed he had a shotgun hanging casually from his right hand, as if it were an everyday thing. Perhaps it was, here in Vicksburg. I'm looking for a room. We got three types. Ten dollar, fifteen dollar, twenty dollar. I'll try the ten dollar. Without even nodding, the owner lolloped away from me, his feet slapping along on the walkway as he led me from the reception hut to the rooms, his gun still in his right hand. The motel seemed empty, no guests loitering around. He stopped at a door, leaned his shotgun against its frame, opened the door, and flicked a switch inside the room. This one's ten dollars. I looked inside. It was basic and a bit grubby, but good enough for me, especially at that price. Behind me, Stingray Man lurked, heavy-lidded, smoking a cigarette. I left him outside the room, followed the obese motel owner back to the reception hut where I filled out some forms, paid my deposit, and got a key. When I returned to my room, Stingray Man was gone. Relieved that I'd shaken him off, I opened the door, carried my bags into the room. Suddenly, Stingray Man was behind me, appearing from heaven knows where. He followed me into the room, sitting down in its only chair. Well, I said, thanks very much for your help. I smiled to soften the implication that it was now time for him to leave, but he failed to take the hint. I turned my back. You feel that company? A hand slid over my bum, round my hips, towards my front. No. I said it as firmly as I could, but he refused to go. I didn't listen to what he said next. The tone was obvious, lascivious, suggestive, predatory. You having any troubles, miss? It was obese owner. He was in the doorway. I never thought I'd be pleased to see him, but he'd turned up just in time. I was just asking this gentleman to leave, I said. You know this gentleman? I explained that Stingray Man had led me to the motel, but that was all. So, I guess it's time for you to go, said obese owner, stepping into the room, his shotgun still held in his right hand, hanging loose beside his hip. Stingray Man paused for a moment. Then, without saying a word, he left. I expected Obi's owner to follow him out, but he only went as far as the door from where he watched Stingray Man get into his Corvette, drive out of the motel, out of sight on the highway. You need anything from the grocery store, said Obi's owner. I told him I was fine, wondered how long I'd have to wait before he left. Just say if you need anything. Thanks, I pulled a polite smile. Not too curt, I hoped. You mind if I come in and talk? I wanted privacy, but Obi's owner had just saved my skin. Thinking it might seem churlish if I was too unfriendly, I shook my head. Be my guest. He was pleasant enough. We discussed Stingray Man and his wandering hand trouble. If that jerk comes back, said Obi's owner, I've got my 12 bore in my office. I'll blow his ass off. I didn't know what to say. It seemed wrong to say thanks to an offer of murder, but I appreciated the sentiment. That's good to know, I said. Well, what about me then, said Obi's owner. I've never slept with an English girl. 
I looked at him and realized he wasn't joking. The tiny part of me admired the chutzpah of a simple matter-of-fact approach, but I shook my head. Thanks, but no thanks, I said, and then reminded myself to smile. He had a gun, and I was maybe the only guest in the hotel. It's been a long day on the road. I need some rest. Obi's owner shrugged and left the room, my heart pounding. I bolted the door behind him. I tried to settle down for the night, exhausted after the day's ride. Lying on the bed, studying the map, deciding on the following day's route, I let my eyes wander and noticed the brown pattern on the carpet. It appeared to be moving. For a moment, I thought my eyes were going. Was tiredness playing tricks with my vision? Then I looked at the walls, the ceiling, the bedspread. They all appeared to be moving. Cockroaches, hundreds of them. I leapt off the bed, grabbed my shoes, pulled one on, stopped suddenly when I felt something move beneath my foot. It was a roach inside my shoe. Suppressing the urge to scream, I tipped out the cockroach, grabbed as much of my stuff as I could, felt relieved that I'd been too tired to unpack most of it, ran out the door. I can cope with just about anything, I told obese man in the reception hut. Spiders, snakes, almost any insect or creepy crawly, but roaches I hate. Obi's owner gave me a new room, a better one, for the same $10 price, so I felt I'd scored at least a minor victory, even if I was still finding squashed cockroaches inside my clothes and bags weeks later. I spent a pleasant morning in warm sunshine, wandering around Vicksburg's huge park full of war memorials. Keen to get to New Orleans, I set off before midday, unsure of exactly which route to take, but knowing that New Orleans lay to the south. An hour later, I found myself riding through the swamps of the Mississippi Delta, the road signs telling me I was about 150 miles from the Big Easy. The swamps kept my mind busy for 15 or 20 minutes, but soon grew dull when they continued for hour after hour. With little and monotonous landscape to occupy me, my mind wandered, and inevitably it wandered to thoughts of Mark. Approaching a month on the road on my own, and I still hadn't managed to work out my feelings about him. He was such a nice person, but somehow his niceness conspired to turn me off. Maybe if Mark hadn't made his love for me so obvious, I'd have found him more attractive. That niceness was a problem. He had no edge, no danger, and none of the exciting uncertainty I'd felt with Alex. Whereas Alex always left me guessing, Mark presented his love to me on a plate. Knowing exactly what I was getting made Mark a bit boring to me. Maybe I needed danger more than I needed security. By late afternoon, I was in a New Orleans youth hostel, enjoying the company of other travelers for the first time since I had left home. The city was a great place, compact and manageable on foot, and the hostel, a lovely old French Creole building with wrought iron balconies, was busy with the usual hosteling people, comparing all their traveling adventures. Having rolled up on my bike, I felt slightly apart from the other travelers, excluded from their experiences and their need to hook up with other young people on the backpacker trail. They looked at me as if I were slightly strange. A couple of them made it clear they were suspicious of a young woman on a big bike, especially when I told them I was on my way to Sydney, but it was pleasant to be around fellow travelers again. On the second day, I met a girl from Montreal at breakfast, and we went around New Orleans together. Unused to the company of other people, I found myself struggling to talk to her. Still unsure of exactly why I was doing the trip, I found myself clamming up in the company of others, paranoid that everyone thought I was dull and uninteresting. Fortunately, New Orleans was full of life, the streets bustling with music, buskers, jazz halls, and bars. 
Although not somewhere I'd stay for long, it made a pleasant break for a few days. I realized I'd been riding my bike every day since I left Detroit, the thoughts in my head keeping me moving forwards, putting miles under my BMW's wheels as a distraction. Maybe if my head and heart weren't such a whirling mass of thoughts and emotions, I would have ridden slower, stopped more, taken in the sights instead of racing across the continent to Los Angeles. After three days in New Orleans, I was tiring of the big city and longed to be on my own again. Sometimes solitude was my best companion. I left early the next morning, heading west for Houston, which I hoped to make that night as there was another youth hostel there across the state line in Texas, a state I'd heard so much about but never experienced. Remembering the boast of a Texan I'd met with Justy in one of the Dakotas the previous summer, I rolled into Texas expecting something special in the land of oil, 100,000-acre ranches and 10-gallon hats. You haven't seen America until you've seen the Lone Star State, that Texan had exclaimed. After such a buildup, it was perhaps inevitable that my first experience of the state, a two-hour ride around Houston in search of a youth hostel after 400 hot and dusty miles from New Orleans, was an anticlimax. As far as I could make out, there was little special about Houston, a vast, sprawling city of skyscrapers that seemed to be one huge roadwork surrounded by oil, oil derricks. When I found it, the youth hostel was good run by a newlywed English couple who seemed genuinely glad to have someone staying with them, it was a pleasant place to stay the night. From Houston, I rode to San Antonio to see the lump of rock that I'd seen John Wayne fight for in the Alamo movie, before continuing to El Paso across 500 miles of flat, empty rocky desert interspersed with occasional bits of scrub. Riding through endless nothingness for mile after mile, I wondered how Texas had managed to get its reputation. Sure, it was big, and yes, there was something impressive about an extraordinarily empty, endless landscape split only by the road running ahead to the horizon. But I struggled to see what was great about it. Hot and dust-covered, I decided the sooner I got out of the state, the better. With very little traffic in sight, I let rip. Speeding through Texas, faster than anywhere else so far, stopping only when I spotted a chain motel just outside El Paso. I pulled into the forecourt, took a room, parked my bike outside it, and looked around. A gas station, a diner, and some tumbleweed. That was it. There was a stark beauty to the vast emptiness, the kind of beauty that looks atmospheric in photographs. But seeing it made me realize it was perhaps not that surprising that El Paso's biggest claim to fame seemed to be the number of illegal immigrants that poured in across the border from Mexico. After a good night's sleep, I ate breakfast in the diner, then decided to give my bike a quick checkover before leaving for Las Cruces in New Mexico. My speedo cable was running on the steering yoke, so I rerouted it, then checked all the other cables as well as the fluids and oils. Satisfied that everything was in order, I pressed the ignition. For the first time since arriving in America, the old girl didn't want to start. Her engine turned over, but that was all. 